lieu of our youth gathering tonight, we will actually not have youth, but we uh, got together last night. And if there's any indication in, as to what season we're in as a church, there were many youth of attending, and there was lots of kickball, and I think the other team cheated, so we got robbed. Um, but, you know, the lead cheater just happens to be a state trooper, but whatever. <clears throat> He'd probably say the same thing about me. Um, not that I'm a state trooper, but that I'm a cheater. So, you know, but you got to win somehow, right? And short kids always cheat. So that's what we do. Um, as we begin our study this morning, um, I want to... Uh, I want to start by reading an article I read in uh, USA Today, not because I uh, prescribe or subscribe, there's the word, uh, but because I thought it was interesting. This is from March of 2020, and this is what it says. There's a lot of big words I'm going to mess up in here because I'm not that smart, but in this article, what it talks about, and here's the, the main title, Earth may have been a water world without continents three billion years ago, a study suggests... Now, what's interesting about that is that um, scientists are now coming around to the idea that at some point, Earth was completely covered in water. Hmm. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before, and maybe, just maybe, the Bible might be a little bit ahead of science. Just maybe. I'm just going to throw that out there. That's my theory. Okay, so around three billion years ago, Earth may have been covered in water a proverbial water world without any continents separating the oceans. Uh, now, of course, they're referring to Waterworld, which was a movie with, wasn't it Kevin Costner in it? So they're going to quote a Kevin Costner movie instead of saying, you know, like perhaps the biblical account would say, because it's way easier to quote Hollywood and acceptable. But then it goes on to say, that's according to a new study published Tuesday in the peer-reviewed scientific journal Nature Geoscience by a pair of researchers from the University of Colorado Boulder. By the way, Colorado Boulder is one of the most atheistic universities you can go to for science. So what's interesting is that these atheists are actually proving what Bible, the Bible says by their research. I love this, the wisdom of God. They uncovered an ancient piece of marine sediment in the Western Australian outback that may have some answers for the evolution of life on Earth. Now, they're looking at the evidence, and they're coming up with conclusions based on their presuppositions or their ideas before the research. We would look at the same evidence, by the way, from a biblical worldview, and we would come up with way different conclusions based on what we have assumed and believe to be true. Their findings are based on belief, just like ours are. Because not one of them, by the way, has ancestors that were alive three billion years ago. But all that said, uh, what I wanted to read this for was because in 2020, this year, research is coming out, and multiple uh, venues, multiple papers, multiple publications took this uh, finding and published it like it was news. Like it was something that was unheard of before. We, we've considered it, and we're thinking that perhaps the world used to be covered in life that was only water-formed. And so they're thinking that it was flooded, or sorry, already covered in water, and they're believing that many of the water-saturated planets, which there aren't any, will perhaps create the same life form at some point. 
And so what's interesting about that is they believe after looking at different crustaceans and stuff that they found in, in layers of the earth at places that are now dry land, that there's this highly saturated oxygen content that was only found in places where oceans existed. And so they're finding evidence that there was water on more than just what we have water on now. All that to say, I just think it's interesting that, you know, this thing that everybody says is archaic and unreliable and doesn't really teach us anything that's relevant to today um, actually does. Imagine that. So anyway, couldn't help but read that, at least a little bit of it. So Genesis chapter 7. We find ourselves uh, in the story of Noah. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 6, we actually looked at the problem. The problem is that man is evil and wicked. And God saw that he was wicked and evil. And not just on the outward, but on every intention of his heart was focused upon wickedness always. And we know that from the Bible that, that mankind is desperately wicked and our hearts even are deceitful, uh, deceitful above all else. And so as Noah has found favor with God, according to verse 8 of Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then it lists his genealogy. But then it says in verse 9 that Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. And that's the earmark that I, I focused on last week. The thing that set Noah apart from his generation is that he walked with God. He was with God. If God is for us, we quote from Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? But the reality is that God is for us whether we are for him or not. And so we also have to be with him in order to experience the blessing of him being for us. He's not for us, by the way, when we walk in rebellion against him. We have to repent and agree with his standard and then walk with him in agreement with his standard. And so in Genesis chapter 6, we see that God's getting ready to judge the world by a worldwide flood. So it makes sense that he would do that, by the way, because God is holy. But what doesn't make sense about that chapter is that God would preserve one man and his family. It makes sense that God would judge the world by his righteous standard. What doesn't make sense is that Noah would be kept through the judgment. Because though he is righteous, though he's walked with God, he's still a sinner. And we'll see that in further chapters. If you know anything about Noah and you've read the National Enquirer version of this story, what you'll see is that at the end of it, uh, God saves Noah and his family and Noah goes off the deep end. He can't take the stress he can't take what he's just gone through. He plants a vineyard. The first thing he does, he gets off the boat, he plants a vineyard, and then he gets drunk. That's his story. Not the greatest end to a pretty awesome story. And yet what we find is that God has said that he's going to give Noah grace. And grace is undeserved favor from God. You can't earn it. We can't deserve it. And so in Genesis chapter 7, it says, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. Now, if you remember what it said in verse 22, right before that, it says, Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So part of walking with God wasn't just hearing what God said and going, I'm going to walk with you, God, and then not. Part of walking with God meant that all that God commanded 
know what to do, he did. He responded in faith to the point that he built an ark. And we talked about last time how this ark took 120 years to build. 120 years. That, that if, if we have the longest life that goes on right now, we won't live that long. And so he took 120 years. He built a boat, though he had never seen rain, and though he was in the middle of a desert primarily. And not a desert like we think of now, but a wilderness. And so he builds this boat, and he is called by the New Testament a preacher of righteousness by doing this very act. But he does this all to prepare the way for salvation. So he says, Come into the ark, you and your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a man and his, excuse me, a male and his female. Also, seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So what's interesting about this is that the earmark of Noah's life at this point is that verse 22 in chapter 6 says he did all according to that God commanded. And then in verse 5 of this passage, it says Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded. It seems to be that the writer of this book wants us to know that Noah did all the Lord commanded, and that's why we know his name. Everything that you can do according to your own will will not make a name for you. But if you will do all that the Lord commands, you will make a name for yourself. You will be saved by your works, although you are not saved by your works. You'll be saved by living by faith and doing what God gives you. But then you'll also... Look at this, verse 1, he says, get into the ark. I'm going to save you through this flood, Noah. And then he says, you and all your household. By the way, God is in the business of saving individuals, but he's also in the business of saving families. His desire is to make a family of God, and he wants every one of your household to be in the ark. And we're going to look at this, but the ark is Jesus, by the way. Think about it. This boat has been built. The height, the dimensions, every detail is specified to Noah. Noah builds it. But the boat door is in the side. Think about this. Adam and Eve. Adam was created from the dust, and out of Adam's side was created what? Eve. His side was opened up. He was put to sleep. His side was opened up, and out of the side, a piece of Adam is removed by God, and Eve is created. Think about the ark. The ark is built, and, and, and then the side of the ark is opened up. And then the people go in, and the animals, we're going to see all that. But then God closes up the side, just like God closed up the side of Adam. And through that, he preserved descendants, godly descendants, for us to be created from and born from, and to multiply from. 
And so the, this line of godliness is, is perpetuated through the ark. And, and at the same time, we look at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was crucified, and at the very end of it, he died. He gave up his soul. He said, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit, Father. And when that happens, the soldier comes up and takes a spear and does what? Pierces his side. And out of that side comes blood and water separated. Through his side becomes the birth of the church. We're cleansed in that blood. And so all, this isn't on accident. The Old Testament points to Jesus, every single piece of it. And I think we're going to spend eternity going, oh, I didn't know that was about Jesus. It, things that we never talk about on Sunday mornings, God's going to open up to us and go, this was my son right here in the middle of this story. And so God's call to mankind is to come it's a major theme in the Bible. Now think about it. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make you white as snow. Come. God's call to the Israelites, come, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. God's call to Abraham, come, and I will take you to a land that I will show you. All of these things are the, the, the calling to come. Then Jesus, New Testament says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And, and then his call, even to his son, come, be in the wilderness. So all of these things are pointing to God calling mankind all the way through the New Testament. And then you get to Revelation. And he says, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the, the response of mankind is, even so, Lord Jesus, come and save us. Come and, and deliver us into this new kingdom that you've prepared for us. So he wants to save us and our families. He says, take seven each of the clean animals. Uh, the clean animals were the ones that already in the, new, in the Old Testament, we don't have the law. We don't have Leviticus you know, we don't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but, but these first five books, the Pentateuch, are one. And many believe that they were written by Moses. And we can thumb wrestle about that, but already in the, in the Old Testament, we have this idea of taking clean animals, seven each. We always think of the ark. We think the animals went in two by two, you know, the Bible story. And yet what it says here is of the clean animals, I want you to take seven each, male and female. This was, number one, for survival. They're going to eat some food. Because after the flood, before the flood, they, only, they were vegetarians. Even the animals were. Then after the flood, there's this enmity after the fall. And then all of a sudden, we're going to eat meat. So there was for survival of the, the animals, but also sur survival of the people. They needed food. But then also for sacrificial animals. After they get off of the boat... After the flood, the first thing Noah's going to do is he's going to build an altar and he's going to worship the Lord by burning animals as sacrifice. Then he says, take two each of the unclean animals. And this is primarily and only for survival of each kind. And we talked about this last time. We didn't have to have every breed of dog. Just dog kind. We need a representative. Of the birds, the birds of prey, one kind. If the dinosaurs were on there, they had one version of whatever dinosaur, and they could be baby dinosaurs. Doesn't matter. Two of each of every kind. But the warning is 
is that 40 days there's going to be rain. 40 24-hour periods of rain. 40 is the number of testing, and it's also the number of judgment in the Bible. If you look at uh, Moses, he left Egypt. He went to the wilderness for 40 years, and God prepared him during those 40 years. So it was when he was 80 years old that Moses was sent back to deliver the people from Egypt. Uh, Also, Jesus, when he was tempted in Luke chapter 4, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but he, after being baptized, was raised up, and it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days where he did not eat. And at the end of 40 days, he was tested. He was tempted. Satan came and said, if, you, if you're the, really the son of God, you turn this, bread, this, this rock into a loaf of bread so you can be sustained. And so there was the temptation. So this 40 days of rain, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. And then he, by faith, was in the boat. So there's the, the call to come on the ark, and then there's the call to come through the door. There was only one entrance into the ark. Verse 7, so Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two, they went into the ark to Noah. Notice this. Noah's already on the ark. He is not dragging billy goats onto the boat. He's not dragging giraffes. He's not dragging animals. It says he's in the boat, and two by two, the animals went into the ark to Noah. This is significant. And we would go, and many people would say, how is this possible? That God could command animals, and they would, wild animals, and they would organize themselves and go onto a boat. And we say that, but have you ever seen, uh, what is that, that penguin movie? It's like the longest, coldest movie you've ever watched. Where they, like, I, I've watched it, and they have the wind blowing and the microphones, and like you watch it, and even if it's not cold out, you're piling blankets on yourself, because it enraptures you into the, the Antarctic uh, temperatures. But, but in that movie, what's interesting is that those animals designed by God have these instincts that the mom lays an egg and then leaves and then the dad stays on the egg for three months and the mom goes on an eating binge she jumps in the water and goes and starts eating for three months eating three months the dad stands there and freezes to death while he's standing on the egg but after three months she comes back to where those penguins are now they're all dressed the same way (laughs) suit and tie and she finds the exact husband amidst all these animals that all look exactly the same she finds the same dude with the egg and she sits on the egg and then he leaves or maybe he stays i can't remember that part all i'm saying is that they find each other god made them that way in the same way, there's these birds that come from up by Canada and they fly for the winter. They go all the way to Hawaii. 
But when they go, and I think they're called turns, I'm probably wrong on that, but they fly all the way to Hawaii. They don't have GPS. They don't have a navigation system. They have the one that God gave them. But when they fly down there, they don't take their young. They leave them in the Arctic conditions because they're too small to fly that distance. But at just the right time, just the right maturity, those babies grow up to be big enough and they fly all the way to Hawaii. They make it. Now, Hawaii is a dot on a map in the Pacific Ocean, the biggest ocean. And they find it. How? That's how God made them. He made them to do that. So with that in mind, and we know that from research, how hard would it be for God to gather every species, every kind, and bring them onto the ark? It's mysterious. But God designs, and he plans, and nothings uh, he's not incapable of anything. So all that to say, he calls them onto the boat. And it says there, <clears throat> they went into the ark, to Noah, male and female, as God commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, this isn't, these are details, by the way, this isn't allegory. Allegory doesn't take time to list out these kinds of details. This is a literal story. He's telling an exact date. He wants you to know that this was a place and time and space that existed. This isn't a story to teach a lesson. This is his story. This is his story. And so it says there, all the fountain, excuse me, in the 600th day, year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain on the earth was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So the water source wasn't just rain, by the way. The fountains of the deep broke up and released the water that was inside the earth. And what's interesting is many scholars and theologians believe that this is when the scientists call Pangea took place. But many believe that it didn't take place until Genesis chapter 11 when we have the Tower of Babel and the spreading of all the nations because of their wickedness. But we'll get there. Nonetheless, there was water inside the earth that sprung forth and at the same time, 40 days, 40 nights of rain. And what it says there, uh, the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So stop there because what's interesting is Noah got on the boat, all the animals got on the boat, and then seven days of waiting. Seven days. Nothing happened. God shuts the door and they wait for a week. And then it rains. I don't know about you guys, but if God tells me something's going to happen and I go through with it and then there's lag time, I get a little nervous, get a little shaken. And I think that's okay. Because God wants us to know that he's in control, but he also wants to us to learn to trust him. He's building in us character. But then it says it rains for 40 days. And on the very same day, he goes back, verse 13, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Joah's, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, 
every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life, so that so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shuts the door. God calls you and I to salvation. Believe in my son. Get on the boat. And when he calls us to salvation, he draws us. He woos us, if that's the word you want to use. But when he woos us and we get on the boat, he seals us for the day of deliverance. He seals us in. The boat was covered in tar or pitch. The idea is that it was waterproof. And then when he closes the door and seals it, he seals us for the day of redemption. When a, when a messenger was sent forth with a message from a king, the king would seal it, not like licking the envelope and closing it, but then licking the envelope, closing it, tying something around it, and then taking wax and sealing the, the closure of it so that if it gets to its final destination and somebody opens it, but the seal's already been tampered with, they know that somebody broke into it and tampered with the message. But God, when he seals us, he procures us, he prepares us, and he sends us through this life, guaranteeing our passage into eternity. And so the question becomes, when we're saved, is it me that responds to the gospel or is it God that draws me and saves me? And I believe that the Bible says yes. Jesus keeps those who the Father gives him. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see uh, Paul lay this out simply and yet in a complicated fashion. Paul is marveling at the salvation that God has procured for us. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In Jesus you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth. We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. And the gospel of your salvation you heard from the word of truth. In whom also, Jesus, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So he saves us, then he guarantees our passage through this life, guarantees our inheritance until the redemption is complete. He's bought us back from slavery and sin. And yet we still struggle with sin. And yet he's bought us and every sheep that he purchases, he keeps until the day where we are made perfect. So Jesus keeps those who the Father gives him. So does God alone save me and keep me eternally secure? Yes. And actually in John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, it says that every sheep that the Father gives me, I will keep. I guarantee. I guarantee. But then the question becomes, so do I have to respond to God to be saved and make a choice and yet have to choose to remain in him? And I would say, yes. So Noah was saved by faith. By faith, Noah gets on the boat. 
But by faith, Noah has to stay on the boat. And you'd say, well, isn't it obvious? If the floodwaters rise and he's on a boat, what else can he do but remain on the boat? And I would say to you, Noah could have got off the boat. Noah could have jumped out the window. Noah, by faith, had to stay on the boat. But in John chapter 15, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, talks about the importance of remaining in Jesus, just like Noah has to remain in the boat. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide or remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear fruit. He says, much fruit. So you will be my disciples. So what's interesting about that is that Noah's on the boat. Or Noah's abiding in the vine. He's remaining in Jesus. But the reality is that Noah could jump off the boat, but we all know in this obvious picture that if he jumps off the boat, he will perish. So God seals him in. So Jesus, speaking to his disciples at one point, they say, who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the son of the living God. And, and he had just told them, by the way, if, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And the multitudes that were all about Jesus all of a sudden were like, this, this is a difficult thing to understand. We're out. This is getting creepy. This sounds like cannibalism. And at that point, what happens is that all these people leave and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to depart also? And Simon Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Noah could jump off the boat, but the question would become, are you going to jump off? Where else am I going to go? The whole earth is flooded. You have life. There's only life on the boat. And so all that to say that I believe that the Bible teaches that God alone can save. And the Bible teaches also that unless we respond to his call to salvation to get on the boat, we can't be saved. And yet it's only him that saves us. It's only him that gives us the ability to respond. What's interesting about this, and there's a story in Acts chapter 27, where Paul's going on the ship to Rome, and he's a prisoner. And uh, they're leaving at the wrong time of the year, and there's this big storm that's coming in, and there's the boat's starting to rock and, and, and cast her, and, and it's going to run aground. It's going to hit the ground, and it's being blown around in the Mediterranean Sea. And um, Paul is getting scared. He's frightened. 
but he believes what God told him. You're going to be able to testify before Caesar in Rome. And so the Lord appears to Paul in the middle of the night one night, and the storm's been going on for weeks, and they've been seasick so much that there's nothing left to throw up. And they've gotten so scared that they've thrown all of the stuff off the ship so that they won't be deep enough to hit the ground and crash and all perish in the storm. And Paul receives a vision from Jesus. You're going to survive. Everybody on the ship's going to survive. So he tells this to all the people that he already told, I think we shouldn't go out to sea. I think it's going to go bad for us. We're going to perish. And as he tells them, none of us will perish. The storm starts to let up. They start to see land. And as they start to see the land, there's a couple of the, the ship people that are going to take all the, you know, the little boats that they have hanging off the side for an emergency. And Paul warns them. He says, if, if these men get off the boat, they will perish. So wait a minute. God said we're all going to survive. Yeah, you're going to survive unless you get off the boat, and then you're going to perish. And that's the same message that, that Genesis is giving us. And so I've probably belabored the point, but the point is, is that Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door of salvation. I have there for you a picture of what that means from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the door. Others have come in to the sheep pen before me. They've all climbed over the wall. But unless someone comes through me and he would lay across the, the, the gate of the sheep, uh, they will not be my sheep. They don't know my voice. And so, Continuing on, verse 17. If I can find it. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose above the earth. And the waters prevailed and moved about it on the surface of the waters. The ark moved about. Hey, can you hit my next slide, Jesse? And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, about 23 feet upward, and the mountains were covered. So the tallest peak on the earth of mountains had 23 feet of water above it. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle, beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed in the earth 150 days. So the earth was flooding for 40 days. The ark rested above judgment. The highest mountain peaks were about 23 feet underwater, which would explain why sea fossils are found on mountain peaks. Some think this was a local flood, and many even theologians teach that they believe that the flood was local. My, my problem with that is if that's the case, how was every mountain under the heavens covered in water by 23 feet? The other question I have is, why wasn't the way of salvation for Noah and his family to move to higher ground? Watch the movie Ice Age, right? You guys have probably all seen it. It's like, it's like a, uh, 
I can't think of another word. Forgive me, but I can't think of another word. It's a bastardized version of Noah. They've removed every spiritual content, and all the animals were saved, not mankind, because mankind hadn't evolved yet. Imagine that. And then they're all going to higher ground. But it was a worldwide flood, folks. Those movies are meant to indoctrinate your children. You don't even realize it. Now, we watched them too. But my point is we need to point out the things that are there that are trying to teach us that the flood never happened. If there was not a worldwide flood, then Noah's call from God would have been to go to higher ground. Go to this place. I will show you where you can be saved. But the way of salvation was something that made no sense to mankind at the time. Mankind would have went to higher ground. But getting on a boat made no sense. So if it was local, all mankind and beasts would, have been would not have been destroyed. Those that hadn't gone to higher ground could still find salvation. So the floodwaters remained for 150 days, which is approximately, what, six months, five months, right? So if that's the case, you have 40 days, you have 150 days, you have the seven days before that. Noah's been on a boat for a long time. Now, I like boats, I like water skiing, I like being on boats. What I don't like is being on there when I don't want to remain on there. Think about the animal smell. The animals are awake. They're probably doing their business. They had enough food for everybody, but it would wear on you. And the last point I want to make today is that meanwhile, Noah's in the boat, and God, who spoke very clearly to Noah on how to build the boat and what to do with this time for 120 years, is mysteriously silent for six months, over six months. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear from the Lord and I do something, I'm ready for the next instruction because we spend all of our time, you and I, planning for the next thing. And while we're doing the thing, we're getting ready for the next thing. It's just our way. Noah has no choice but to be still and know that God told him what to do and to wrestle with what's next. Notice that God didn't tell him how long he was going to be in the ark. Notice that God didn't say, after so many days, bing, microwave's done, now the flood's going to recede, and you're going to get off the boat. He's not even received any instruction that he's ever going to be able to get off the boat. That's scary. And perhaps Noah did what was in front of him just long enough that he wasn't thinking about the long term, but maybe he was. But I have the captain's log for you here. And I would add seven to all these numbers because he got on and then seven days of waiting. And then 40 more days, rain stops. And then 150 days, the ark actually rests on Mount Ararat, which many believe is actually in Turkey. They've never unearthed remains of the boat, although they believe they have. And they're actually encapsulated in glacier-like mountainous region. Day 224, the mountaintops are seen for the first time. Day 264, he sends out a raven. I think that Noah at that point, we're going to read that, gets a little restless. So he sends out a raven, which is a dirty bird. Dirty birds don't have to have anything clean to eat. They're scavengers. No doubt there was plenty to scavenge for a raven. Day 271, he sends out a dove, and the dove returns 
Day 278, the dove returns with an olive leaf. Day 285, the dove returns, excuse me, the dove doesn't return, which means he's found something to build a nest in. Day 314, the ark cover is removed. And then at that point, God gives him instruction. Now you can get off the boat. Simple calculation, but that's pretty much a year. Everybody likes vacation on a boat. I don't think too many of us would want to live on a boat. Maybe you would, I don't know. But it seems to me that faith waits. And the word wait in our culture is a four-letter bomb. None of us likes it. People always say, don't pray for patience because then God will have to work it in you. But I would say that patience is a fruit of the Spirit and God desires that to be produced in you anyway. Think about it. Noah waited for 120 years. That's what this little meme that I found says. But then he waited another year. And God didn't really tell him what the long-range plan was. Abraham waited for 25 years to receive the promise, his son Isaac. And he was already 75 or so when he was given the promise. Jacob waited 20 years to marry Rachel. And the whole time, Laban is scheming against him and and giving him Leah instead. Joseph waited for 13 years to get out of prison for something he didn't do. Also that God could provide a remnant and a way of salvation through a famine for his people and the whole world. Moses waited for 40 years in the desert to do what he was created to do, to deliver the people out of Egypt. And David waited for 12 years, though he was anointed king, to actually become king while he was being chased by the current king through the wilderness as a fugitive. Jesus lived in silence for 30 years, knowing that he was the son of God, submitted to his parents, and waited for the time that he would be anointed and set free to minister in the public eye. As Tom Petty would say, a modern-day theologian, the waiting is the hardest part, right? God promises us things that are amazing if we will wait to receive the promise. God showed me at a young stage in my Christian walk that he wanted me to be married. The temptation is not to wait for the right person. God promises he'll provide for you and I and our families. But he doesn't always give us the result of that promise right away. God promises to deliver us from this life into eternity. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The hard part is not so much believing that he's capable of that. It's believing that it's not going to be thwarted by some sort of political regime or Marxism or if you're on the other side of things, that he's not going to thwart it by a president that won't stop tweeting. You know, whatever side of the scheme you lay on, the the reality is, the temptation is to forget the promise and believe that this life can quench what God plans to do and then to compromise in the meantime instead of just continuing to trust and obey. Noah obeyed. And then when that obedience was over, Noah obeyed. So the instruction that he was given, come into the boat. Come be in the boat. Come wait in the boat. 
Noah didn't have it written out. He, we, we could easily skip forward and, and avoid this section and look at uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 and see that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark and he made a wind to pass over the earth and the fall, floodwaters subsided. We could zoom forward to that. But I want to end this week remaining where we are, where the promises that God has given us, the ones that are awesome, the ones that are almost impossible to believe, haven't been fulfilled yet. Receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We've received the first fruits. We've received the down payment. He's given us the Holy Spirit to believe this, but we have to wait for the promised redemption where we will be completely set free from this life, completely set free from the drudgery of day to day, completely set free from sin and death, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And so remember all that God has done. We're going to take communion today. And God says, I want you to take this communion in remembrance of me. Look at what he did for Noah. He provided sustenance and cleansing. Animals for eating, animals for sacrifice, animals for purification, and all the food that was needed for every animal and every human on that boat. He provided a way of salvation through the boat, Jesus Christ, and then he sealed them in if they were willing to remain in the boat. And then he through the floodwaters, through tribulation, he's producing patience. He lifts them above the judgment that the world will receive. And then he calls us to come and enter in and wait with him. He calls us to wait. And if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 4, you'd see that he, basically he was to wait for 40 days. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, Jesus called his disciples to wait with him. Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus knew that he would be risen from the dead, right? But then he was, he was getting ready to be crucified, turned over the hand of, the, of sinners. Matthew chapter 26, in verse 36, says Jesus came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and he prayed saying, father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, Father, if this cup of wrath cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? 
Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He was preparing them for the coming temptation to be scattered once he was crucified. They all fell asleep. But while we're waiting, God produces character in us. And that character, Romans chapter 5, develops hope. And our hope is no longer in the things that can be washed away by a flood of dissipation, but our hope is in Jesus Christ who cannot be taken away, who we are resting in. Until he calls us out, he's called us to be with him. And what's interesting about being a disciple is that in Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 14, Jesus, when he chose his disciples, he went up on the mountain after praying all night long, he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. He calls us, we come to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And apostles means sent ones. He called them so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. We emphasize the being sent out. We've been called to go and make disciples. But you cannot be sent out until you've first spent time with him. And so this life is more than just about being sent around in the places that we go. But if we've not spent time with him, we can't be sent by him. If we've not spent time with him, we'll have a hard time trusting him when he sends us. So I don't know what God's preparing you for. I don't know what he's developing in you. I don't know the thing that he's promised you, that you're struggling to hold on to that promise because you feel like it's never going to come. But guess what? He's developing in you something he can't develop any other way while he has you waiting. He's preparing you for the next thing. So this morning as we take communion, we have it up here for you. I'm sorry it's hard to open. It's really hard to open. But we're going to take the cracker first, and then we're going to take the juice. But as we do that, what I want you to do is just spend a few moments with him. That's what communion is about. It's called the Eucharist in some circles, which means to give thanks. That's all it means. But as we take this meal, we're taking it with him. And while we're with him, he desires to speak to us. And I believe that in the silent years of Noah, while he was with God in the ark, God was developing in him things and he was telling him things. He was revealing to him things about himself that he was trying to purge out. We're in a season of waiting, folks. We're waiting for an election. We're waiting for things to get back to normal, which I don't think they will. And, and all in the meantime, God's developing in us hope and things that can't disappoint. And so... Would you wait with me this morning as we take communion? We'll play a song, and as we play the song, as always, spend time with Jesus, come up and get the stuff, and after the song, we will take it together in fellowship.